Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira, for this month's show. Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for February 2013. Wow, February already. Hope the year's turning out well for you. I've had a pretty relaxing time over December and January. I've been spending a lot of time enjoying the beautiful Perth summer, but I can see it's already looking like a pretty busy year for me coming up in, in very good ways as well. So the theme of this episode is Taming the Email Tiger. And I'm calling it that because my feature interview is with Stuart Snooks, who's a productivity expert who uses exactly that phrase in his branding. So you're going to be hearing from Stuart pretty soon. But I want to start by continuing last month's theme, which is all about personal branding. So if you're a regular listener, you might remember that last month I spoke with brand expert Michael Nalon. And Michael had some fascinating and really valuable insights into the strategy around your personal brand. And later that month on my other podcast, which is called Out of Office... My friend and colleague, Chris Putney, and I talked about the same topic of personal branding, and we looked at some practical ways that you could create your personal brand. So Chris and I talk about out-of-office workers. So these are people who are either employees who work from home, in other words, they're telecommuters, or they might be business owners who work from a home office or don't have to work from any sort of fixed location. And either way, I think you'll find this quite useful, especially as a follow-up to Michael's advice last month. So... The first step, if you don't already have a personal brand, is identifying that personal brand that you want to create. So perhaps we could start with ours, Gihan. My personal brand is data visualisation. So I'm hoping that uh, people, when they think of data visualisation, they think of me as the go-to guy to get data visualisation work done. In fact, what I'm trying to do is that when when projects are being developed and thought about, I'd like the organisation to think of the data visualisation component. I work in R&D and there's a lot of data to be dealt with and I want them to always consider visualisation as part of the project and when they think of data visualisation, I want them to think of me as a person who can help them with that. And conversely, when they think of me, I want them to think of me as the data visualisation guru. Mm-hmm. So what about you, Gihan? I guess uh, your personal brand would be bad sense oh. of humour? <laughs> uh, no, I didn't want to steal that one from you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine's online leverage. So if you want to if you want to get more of what you're doing online, uh, then I can, I'm the leverage guy. So, And a number of people have referred to me as that, as uh, one of my clients and, and, and mates now, Matt Church. He says, yeah, you want to leverage it, you want to get more of what you do? Like Gihan's a leverage guy. And I think that's part of what you want to do when, you, when you're setting up your personal brand and identifying it. So if you've never thought about how you'd like to be known, then I reckon one of the easiest exercises to use to identify your personal brand is something that I teach clients to do is to think about the four E's. So what's your expertise? So what are your skills? What's your experience? So like how many years experience have you had? How many number of clients have you worked with? How many uh, multiple projects have you worked on? Uh, What's your education? So what qualifications do you have, formal and informal? And what endorsements do you have? So do you have testimonials or recommendations from people in authority? So if you look at those four things, they can help you identify your personal brand. So expertise, experience, education, and endorsements. Excellent. So having identified your personal brand, the next step is to take some steps to start building it. Now, if, again, like me, you're an employee, you need to discuss this sort of thing with your manager. Um, It's important that you get permission. With me being a contractor, uh, it's not appropriate for me to start trying to endorse myself within the organisation that I work for without the blessing of the people for whom I'm working. So 
start out a discussion with your manager and get permission for activities that you use to build your brand. One of the reasons for doing so is that it's important that you align your brand with that of your employer or of your team. So I'm a member of a team and my manager is very conscious about the brand. He's building the team's brand and so any branding efforts on my own part need to be congruent with the team's brand and the organisation's brand as well. In doing so, it's really important that you don't do things like expose your, organization, your organization's confidential info. So don't go writing on a blog, uh, a public blog, about uh, a super secret project that you're currently engaged in. Obviously, that's the sort of thing that you don't want to be publicizing. And I think this is really, that's a really important point. And as, as, you, as you say, Chris, there's some things which are obvious, like a super secret project that you're working on. But there are other things that may not be so obvious, but can still unintentionally or inadvertently leak out confidential information. And I remember one story, it was quite a while ago now, and it's not exactly about personal branding, but it's the same it's a, uh, it's a principle here. Uh, you might remember this, Chris, where Amazon.com, they allowed you to, you could look at what people at a certain domain name were buying. All right. Uh, and there was once, one story that came out in the media was there was, that they found that there's one company a lot of the employee, a lot of the employees from that company were buying books about uh, changing jobs and looking for new jobs. Okay, and you know they were all like each of those individually was buying the book for themselves, and they thought they were buying it privately, and nobody else saw what they were buying. But Amazon was releasing some of this data in aggregate, which they also thought wasn't going to do any harm. Mm-hmm. But somebody tricked. Uh, triggered or, or noticed that uh, that there are a whole bunch of people <laughs> buying books about changing jobs and therefore that maybe said something about well, the state of that the state of that company and the yeah. the stability and reliability of the company so was can it be- amazon.com <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't but you know it can be like you can do stuff that you think isn't going to really make much of a difference and it's it's safe for me to share this but you just got to be really really careful when you're working in an organization and uh, and publishing stuff publicly Indeed. I mean, this podcast is a case in point. I'm always cautious about talking about the work that I'm doing. And um, and when when we wrote Out of Office, I went uh, the Out of Office book. I, I spoke with my manager about that and he read a, a draft copy and he endorsed it and he was happy with it. But I got permission in the first place. So I think that's what we're talking about here. Exactly. And, yeah. And as I said, my manager endorsed it and my current manager, another guy, uh, he's he's very brand conscious. And uh, if you've got an enlightened manager, they'll support you in this effort because it helps helps the team as well as helping you. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So if you look look at look at some of the say nitty gritty things of of building your personal brand and what are the what are the bits of your online footprint that you're going to create. So let's go through a few of these, Chris. And I just I guess I'm going to make the point here that you don't necessarily have to do all of these things. Uh, they're probably more important if you're a business owner or entrepreneur. And some of these you may think they're less important if you're an employee, but they're things that are worth considering anyway. And the, and the first one is domain names. It's a very very simple thing to do to register domain names now and you know all the good ones are taken but there's some around personal branding that aren't so the first thing i'd recommend is you have a look for the .com domain name for your name so i've got gihanperera.com um i don't know whether you've got chrisputney.com have you chris yeah i grabbed it someone let it lapse i i missed out uh, but it lapsed so i've now grabbed chrisputney.com so we're Great. fortunate Gihan. we have fairly distinctive names if you're tom jones <laughs> that's gone <laughs> yeah that's right and uh, even even that said like i know 
three other Gihan Pereiras in Perth, mm-hmm. at oh, least. Okay. Yeah, so even though it is quite an unusual name, given that it's now a worldwide audience and a worldwide market for things like domain names, it's uh, like Gihan and Pereira are very common names. And mm-hmm. so that can't, that combination is actually not unusual. So I'm glad that I got GihanPereira.com. And while you're at it, you might as, also, might as well also get some of the other the other extensions as well and so i've got gihanpro.com which points to my website i've got gihanpro.info which points to my blog which is actually just a page on my website but it's nice to be able to just give people that address uh, i've got gihanpro.tv which points to my youtube channel and again that just redirects to a page on youtube uh, so it's worth registering them they don't cost very much and they don't cost very much to renew and if after a while if after a few years you decide you don't want them just let them lapse but otherwise uh, register them and i think even if you don't have things like a website or a blog or a youtube channel yet one of the most effective things you can do is create a linkedin profile which i know you're going to talk about soon chris and then just get your dot com name and point your linkedin profile and i've advised a few of my I guess, friends really who are employees to do just that. So they, they're active on LinkedIn because that's what you should do as an employee. But I've advised them to buy their domain name for their name and point it to LinkedIn for now. That's a great idea. I'm going to do that. I, don't, I haven't hooked chrispudney.com up to my LinkedIn profile. Yeah. So just, I will. And just to forward it. Just forward it. Directly, yeah, redirect. also forward. Simple. Mm. So speaking of LinkedIn, uh, as Gihan mentioned, it's especially valuable for employees to keep their profiles up to date. So as you attain new skills and new experience, update your LinkedIn profile and then connect, build your professional network, link with others on LinkedIn, keep that network going because that's exactly where the power of LinkedIn comes from, from those connections that you make. Another thing that you can do is write endorsements, which are professional recommendations for other people in your network, and that encourages them to do likewise for you in return. And then another feature of LinkedIn is that they have uh, what are called groups uh, that that cover particular um, subject areas. So find those that are of interest to you, join them and participate in them. That helps other people who have done likewise uh, get to know who you are and what it is you have to offer. In addition to LinkedIn, perhaps one of the most common communication channels that out-of-office workers use is email. So it makes sense to include a small brand message in your email. So add something, a tagline or something to the signature of your email messages and that just helps uh, building, build your personal brand. Having said that, it's not something I've done yet. Um, I'm going, I've, I've flagged it as a, a to-do for 2013, and um, as I said earlier, it's something I'll put to my manager and make sure that uh, he's happy with it before I actually put it into action. Yeah, and I think that's a, it's a good point, Chris, because sometimes people go to the two extremes with email signatures. So sometimes they don't have anything at all, which is, which is not very useful because you actually want some contact information, and sometimes they seem to have a whole page worth of uh, comments and testimonials and endorsements and all sorts of stuff. And I think this is a happy medium where you just simply state your personal brand as part of your uh, email signature, and that can be maybe the only promotion you do, and that might be really appropriate, especially for employees within an organization. Yeah. Look, and I think the, the other thing, and the one thing that I'm really big on, is for people to create a blog. So your blog is an oh, it's an online journal. Uh, so every every blog post that you write becomes a new page, which Google will index, and it builds up your body of expertise and your uh, and over time it builds up your the, the volume of knowledge which supports whatever you whatever you have as your brand identity. So I think you should set up a blog. Uh, 
And again, this is something you've got to be careful of if you're an employee, just make sure that you do get permission. And you may even have a private infrastructure which allows you to blog on your private internet. Maybe that's all you need. But you could also set up a public blog. And I think if you haven't got any anything else, go to blogger.com and set up a free blog there. Uh, and if you've got a little bit more technical skill and you're a bit more sophisticated, you can also set up a WordPress blog, which is more powerful, but you don't really need the power of, of WordPress in general. So set up the blog and then start posting stuff. And the easiest things to post are other people's stuff. But what you do is you post them and you post a, a link to them. Uh, so let's say you have a news story uh, that you see somewhere. So you post a link to the news story, maybe just summarize in one paragraph and then add your comment to it. Or you could find a, say, a YouTube video or a slide share presentation, embed that in your blog and then add a little comment. So add a bit of context as you're posting. And that's the easiest way to get started. Uh, and, and you just start and I'd suggest just set, set yourself a goal of doing one blog post a week. And that's that's all you need to do. And then the next level is to start writing your own material and then publish that to your blog as well. But start by just doing, just commenting on other people's stuff. Yeah, I, I completely endorse what you've got to say there, Gihan. The organization that I work for has an internal blogging system. So I'm actively blogging about the work I'm doing on data visualization on the internal blog. And then in addition to that, I have a public blog where I blog about other work that I do. So I'm also developing data visualizations outside of the work that I, that I do for, as, a, as paid income, where I develop stuff for my own benefit. And, and that's where I, I, I blog to that one. So vizlives.com is my, my public data visualization blog. And I think, yeah, blogging is probably one of the most valuable personal branding tools that there is. Yeah, and you've actually just reminded me of something else, Chris. With Within organizations, quite often, uh, the, the more enlightened organizations do actually have an active intranet, and they have tools like blogs and forums. And so you might even have a project blog. Uh, and it may be, so I know an organization, and I won't say who it is, but uh, a friend of mine works in an organization where she the projects that she's involved in, they will generally have a blog for their project. And the, the blog is to help people within the project team, but also to tell other people in the organization what's happening with, with the individual projects. So just out of interest. So instead of them publishing a, a regular newsletter, which sits in people's interest, they actually publish a, an ongoing blog. And so you might choose as part of your personal brand to, to contribute to that blog. And when you're contributing, you put on that personal brand hat as well as that project team member hat, and you write posts that way. And in that way, other people in the organization get to know you through your posts on the blog. And there may be people who've never heard of you before, but it could be quite useful for you for your career prospects, for mentoring opportunities, just to, to network within the organization, but without in a very subtle way and also in a way that demonstrates your expertise. Absolutely. Now, another way that you can, another tool that you can use to help build your personal brand is Twitter. So before Twitter came along, uh, I would, if I came across a useful article, then one of the ways I would share that was to put it into a blog article. But now that Twitter's come along, I find that's a really useful way of just putting a, a short tweet out there with a link to that particular uh, useful article, and and that's it. That's pretty much primarily how I use Twitter as far as publishing goes. Uh, and in fact, that can be automated. There are tools such as twitterfeed.com that you can hook up to your blog and it will automatically post a tweet every time a new blog article appears. The, the, other, the other couple of tools that you might consider are, are YouTube and, and SlideShare. So YouTube, as we all know, is about 
publishing videos and when you've got when you've got some material that's worth sharing you can record a YouTube video so just record a video and publish it to YouTube again of course you've got to be careful if you're publishing internal material that again you might want to have have it vetted or at least have a discussion with your with the leaders in your organization about what you should be taught what you're allowed to talk about and then they might leave you to do it so so YouTube is for videos and SlideShare is like YouTube for PowerPoint which is which is really useful for people who who can create slide slideshows easily. Uh, slideshare might be easier to do than recording a YouTube video. And for some people, it's the other way around. And so you can publish your own material that way. But the other thing you can do is share other people's material. So if you find, if you look at YouTube and find videos, you can embed them on your blog. If you find relevant slideshare presentations, you can embed them on your blog. And while we're on this topic, another thing you can do is find relevant infographics and embed that on your blog. And I notice that you do that quite a lot, Chris. You actually report on a lot of other data visualization uh, news and you bring it into one place on your blog, which is great because I subscribe to your blog, but I don't subscribe to all the other sources that you that you, that you you subscribe to and that you then filter out and, and, and give me the best of the best. That's right. So if there's uh, YouTube is for video and uh, SlideShare is for PowerPoint, then Visually and Visualizing.org are sort of the same concepts but applied to visual- data visualizations and infographics. Yeah, so actually do you want to just spell out those URLs because they're those yeah. visual ones? So Visually is visual, V-I-S-U-A-L dot L-Y, and Visualizing.org is visualizing, spelled with a Z, dot org. Mm, great, great. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it possible, and the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort, and freedom in your work life. So I hope you found that useful and practical. And by the way, if you do want to listen to Michael's interview from last month again, you can find it at the website, expertgoalradio.com, where all the past episodes are archived. And Michael's is in January 2013. Now, personal branding is also the theme this month for my eGurus community, which is my private membership site for speakers, trainers, coaches, consultants, authors, and other kind of thought leaders. And this month, we're looking at creating a personal brand through online video, through being clear about your positioning, and also about registering the right domain names for your brand. So if you're not a member of the eGurus community, please join. It's just $55 a month, and you get access to me and many of my resources. Are you a speaker, trainer, coach, consultant, or thought leader? If you'd like to use the internet to get more business or deliver your material, join the eGurus community. Find out more and sign up at eGurus.info. So now let's move on to this month's feature interview, which, as I said, is with productivity and email expert Stuart Snooks. This is Gihan Pereira and talking today with Stuart Snooks, who specializes in helping people manage their email. So if you're struggling to stay on top of all your email overload, and aren't we all, you're going to love this conversation. And I'm sure this isn't the first time you've heard some ideas for handling email, but I reckon you'll find that Stuart's advice might be just what you need. He's been working in this area for uh, 15 years, and he's worked with hundreds of people, both individuals and in business, with their personal and business productivity. Uh, And he's specialized in this area of email productivity for the last seven years. So he really knows what he's talking about, and his solutions are practical and easy and effective. And one thing that I really like is that they're strategic as well. So welcome, Stuart. How are you going? Excellent. Thank you, Kehan. Great. Now, I want to know, with all the other email and productivity and information overload experts out there, what makes you different? Firstly, Gihan, I suppose uh, in Australia, uh, I'm an Australian working with Australians in Australian conditions. Uh, a lot of the email advice that's around that I've found is 
uh, is based uh, in Europe or, or America. And of course, they're different working environments. So the second one would be that I come out of a time management background. So all of my thinking is from the strategic point of view, rather than the technical how to manipulate the tool better. So I'm thinking bigger picture and trying to get people to use email in that bigger picture context. And what you're saying makes sense to you, because I know that I've worked with you for a few years now, and, I, and one of the things I really like is that you're looking at it strategically, so that what we're talking about here is, if you like, platform or tool agnostic. Something I, I saw that really caught my eye was your series called Seven Ways to Write More Effective Email. As I, as I read through these things, I was really struck by the fact that although you're teaching people how to write email, the result is that this also helps them reduce their incoming email overload. And that might be a little bit counterintuitive to some people at the start. That's right. Uh, the more you send, the more you'll get back. And so what uh, ideally we want to do is send a higher quality, uh, but a lesser quantity. And if, if we have better quality messages going out, we're going to get less coming back in. And so we're going to uh, reduce uh, the volume, the overload. Uh, by thinking strategically about it. So let's go through these in turn, Stuart. So we're going to talk about seven ways to write more effective email. Before we jump into those seven, are there any opening comments or big picture comments you want to make about writing email? Yeah, sure, Gihan. The challenge with any form of written communication is to ensure that the reader is able to understand the message the same as we sent it. Uh, people often launch into writing an email without really thinking through what they're trying to achieve. It's such a quick and easy method of communicating that not a lot of thinking goes into it. And there's a couple of principles we should bear in mind as, as part of the, this bigger picture. Firstly, uh, we should write to suit the reader. It's very easy at our end as a sender of communications, but what we need to remember is that our reader is going to receive it usually as an interruption. Usually they're distracted. They were doing something else at the time our message arrived. And our message will be one of a number of others that they're getting. So we need to write to get their attention, but also uh, to adapt to the different sort of people that we're writing to in the same way that we'd write quite differently to a 40-year-old than we would to a four-year-old. Uh, the level of complexity, the tone, the length of the words, the, the subtlety, and so on. So that's the first thing to consider, is write to suit the reader. The second one is to take time at the front end. Again, email is usually something that's written in a hurry. Uh, but if we want to get attention, engage the reader, motivate them to take the action that we're seeking, that sort of email takes more time to write rather than less. What we tend to do is rush off an email, but then we pay a much bigger time price at the back end because now we have to follow up because we didn't get a response the first time, either because it didn't engage them or it didn't get their attention, or perhaps we weren't clear. So now it takes time to get that clarity and then, and then get what needed to be done done, or perhaps they misunderstood and they did something that didn't need to be done at all. And all of that back end uh, time uh, is then paid later. It's worth taking a little bit of extra time at the front end. And it's especially the case with email. That's the case with any sort of writing, but particularly with email because of this uh, high pressure, time pressure, urgency that's associated with it. Just a quick overview of the seven ways. Uh, firstly, is to think first about the sort of messages and people that we perhaps should not email. Secondly, how do we communicate in an age of speed? Thirdly, what is your desired outcome? Uh, and there are only ever four. Uh, fourthly, how do you write better subject lines? How do you break through? Uh, the subject line is, in fact, the most important part of the email, so it's critical that we write that well. And the fifth one is how to automate your email follow-up. Uh, a lot of email we send has to be followed up. How can we automate that as much as possible? The sixth one is uh, why we should use the inverted pyramid structure and why that's best for email. And seventh uh, of these is why you should write an email backwards. Okay. Uh, which I'll just leave, just leave that one hanging until we get there. <laughs> exactly. That sounds intriguing. 
Sounds very interesting. So let, let's start with the first one. So just tracking through what he said, the first one was, was think first. So tell me what you mean by that. Yes, there are obviously some sort of messages that we should not communicate via email. Uh, there are also some people that it's probably not, not best to communicate with via email. The message might be fine, but, but the people are not. So the sort of messages uh, that are not suitable, obviously anything that's confidential or private, uh, email is not very secure. It can be forwarded on. It can end up anywhere. As I say to people, if you write an email and send it off, where could it end up? It could end up on the front page of a newspaper. So it's not good for confidential or, or private messages. Obviously, anything uh, offensive, abusive, or uh, that's going to stir up uh, high emotion is not good for delivering via email. Uh, if you're delivering bad news, email, again, is, is not really the most appropriate way. Anything with any degree of complexity these days, not by email. Uh, email is, is a quick, short, sharp method of communication. People just won't sit down and work through complex issues via email. Obviously, any discipline uh, or reprimands are not appropriate by email. There are better ways to do it. And the one that people often don't think about that's not appropriate for email are urgent messages. Uh, we can think of all the types of messages, but we forget about the urgency one. Anything that's urgent, email is not the best tool to use for, for urgent messages. So there's there's a few, and others, other people come up with their, with other ones, but they're the main sorts of messages that uh, uh, are perhaps not best communicated using email. I think the urgent ones are really interesting and perhaps intriguing one for a lot of people, Stuart, because a lot of people do use email for urgent messages, and if there's a culture in an organisation where email is used that way, then it, it forces people to keep checking their inbox all the time, whereas if you use email for important rather than urgent, then people know that if there's something that's going to be urgent, they're going to be, the, the message is going to be delivered in some other way. Yes, this is one of the biggest uh, resistances I get in my training workshops or coaching, is getting people to a pushback on email as an interruption because uh, they're reluctant to do that because they fear they're going to miss something urgent and I try to get them to realise that urgent messages shouldn't be coming through by email and you can manage other people's expectations and train them to not expect you to have to respond to urgent train them to use another tool um, and I'm just working on a model now where which will unpack in, in rule number two uh, sorry um, item number two communicating in an age of speed but basically uh, urgent messages are, by their nature, suited to a synchronous conversation, a, a live conversation, if you like, whereas email is designed as an asynchronous tool. Uh, and so when we're trying to send synchronous messages through an asynchronous tool, it's going to break down at some point. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves to have to respond quickly, uh, just in case it's urgent, when in fact we should take the urgent messages out of the email channel and put them in a specific channel. In the same way that uh, in recent years in Victoria, after the, the bushfires, uh, one of the things that came out of the Royal Commission was that uh, urgent fire alert messages would be sent by SMS rather than by email. For those who are waiting to hear what sort of people you shouldn't communicate with via email, um, obviously those who, well, let's start with the obvious ones, uh, people who don't use a computer, uh, people who are blind. I mean, they're, they're obvious, but also people who are in roles who don't access email very often or at all, or those who might have some sort of reading limitations. Uh, many older people struggle with email technology. And most importantly, there are certain personality styles who just aren't email savvy. Uh, they're the sort of people that you can pick them up on the, get them on the phone and they're happy to engage with you, whereas if you send email after email after email, they just don't seem to be email-centric. And you, while the message might be fine for email, for that particular personality style, you're probably better off uh, having a verbal conversation. So different personality styles will uh, like email, others uh, will, will uh, not be so... Uh, disposed towards email. Mm. Mm. So, so let's talk about the second principle, 
Stuart, which is communicating in an age of speed. So tell me yes. more about that. Well, of course, we're all in a hurry, aren't we? And sending an email is often quicker than the time it takes to try and catch someone on the phone or to organise and, and conduct a face-to-face meeting or video conference, and especially if that involves multiple people. So if high speed of communications equals high productivity, email's obviously the winner. But email lacks richness of context and it can be easily misunderstood, particularly if there's any degree of complexity or high emotion or if there's a, a good degree of ambiguity that could be there. Um, I'm working on a model by Daft and Lingle where at the one end of the model you've got uh, text, uh, Facebook, instant messages. Uh, you then got email. Uh, after email will come voicemail. And as you go along the scale, you're getting increasing richness and context. Those three methods are asynchronous conversations. You don't have to be talking live with someone to have that conversation. After voicemail would come a, a phone conversation. Uh, the next richest medium would then be something like a video conference or a go-to meeting, go-to webinar. Uh, and then the best of all is when you get face-to-face in a meeting. That's the richest form of uh, communication mode. You've got lots of uh, um, uh, context. You've got... Uh, visual as well as audible when you're working with email and text messages all you've got is, is digital or written language and so uh, as we get to the richer mediums they take longer to communicate as well and we tend to want to communicate very quickly so we use the, the digital uh, written modes email and text and that's not always the best way to get through so while it may be quick at the front end it can often cost more time at the back end uh, so we should think about these things. How easy is it for your message to be misunderstood? And the more you use uh, email, text, uh, to some extent voicemail, the greater the potential to be misunderstood. Secondly, what are the potential consequences if this occurs? And then thirdly, what time and cost is it going to take to retrieve the situation if your email is either not acted on at all or if a misunderstanding occurs? So it might have been quick at the front end, but it might take a lot of time and cost to fix up a situation at the back end. Um, so communicating effectively in an age of speed, in fact, uh, is not always about speed. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is that, as with everything, which sounds a bit obvious, that you should be choosing your communication medium before you decide to actually send something. And sometimes email is the most appropriate one, but sometimes it's just the lazy or the first choice because it just happens to be easy to use. Yes, the convenience is, is enormous. Uh, it's very hard to get people out of that. My uh, research now, coming up seven years, I've been keeping surveys before almost all of my workshops and presentations and consistently see between 29 and 35% of email that people receive, they say would have been better communicated verbally, either on the phone or face-to-face. So nearly one in three emails would be better communicated using a richer mm. mode of communication. Mm. Great. Okay, so number three was what's your desired outcome? And you mentioned earlier, tantalizingly teased us by saying there are only four outcomes. Yes, I love this because it just simplifies things for people. It's just so easy. When you send an email, people can think of multiple uh, outcomes, but really there are only ever four possible outcomes that you could want. Uh, and the first of these is you want the reader to take an action. Uh, an action is required. For example, please prepare me a proposal for a 10% reduction in our transport and freight costs. Um, so you want them to do something, uh, get up and turn off a, a light, go and see so So they need to actually walk away from the desk and do a piece of work. And the second possible outcome is a response is requested. They don't need to take action, but you do want them to respond to your email. And it might be as simple as, are you available for a meeting at 2 o'clock on Friday? Or has that uh, delivery arrived? Or has that invoice been paid? All you want is a response. 
the third possible outcome is you want the reader to read it, but that's all that they need to do. They don't have to take action or respond as far as you're concerned, but reading is compulsory. For example, please read this report before our team meeting next Monday. Or, uh, Gihan, you need to read this document because it's the one you asked me to send you. So you don't need to take action or respond as far as I'm concerned, but you do need to read it. You asked for it. So reading is compulsory. And then the fourth outcome is reading is optional. If you like an FYI or for your interest, um, no action or response is needed. And even reading is optional. You don't have to read it. For example, this is a really, really good joke, but whether you read it or not is up to you. Or here's an interesting article on customer service I thought you might like to have a look at, but whether you read it or not is up to you. It's completely optional. And as I ask people, can you think of an email that doesn't fit into one of those four categories? And and nobody has yet been able to tell me something that doesn't fit into those four categories. And you're right, I'm just thinking through that myself. And yes, so there, there are actions or responses. Uh, so the first two are actually getting the, the reader to do something active, and the others are just about reading or not reading. And I guess all the emails that I send fall into those four categories, Stuart. Yes, great. And if that's the case, why don't we actually put that outcome in the subject line as the very first thing that people read? Ah, right, good. And as I say to people, if you get an email from someone saying action required, does it get your attention? And everybody says, yes, of course. And, and you go looking for what it is. And that's exactly what we want as a sender. We want to get their attention so that they go looking for, for what's needed. And we are much more likely to get the outcome we want. Uh, it also helps the reader to prioritize amongst 10 or 20 or 30 emails. The action required is obviously going to stand out as a higher priority. A uh, response requested is going to ha uh, stand out as a higher priority than one that doesn't have any outcome listed in it at all. Um, so why uh, get people to, in my workshops, to set up four draft emails uh, so that they sit in the drafts folder and instead of clicking new when they want to write a new email, they go to drafts and it makes people think, now which outcome do I want? I want a response requested, highlight that and then click the forward button and it opens up a new email with that subject line already pre-written, your auto signature is already in the body of the message and away you go. The two good things about that uh, that at the sender's end, at my end as a sender, it makes me think what I want. And if I've done the thinking, then I'm much more likely to get that outcome and the reader doesn't have to interpret what it is I'm trying to get. And then uh, by putting it in the subject line, it also gets their attention. And, and I'm much more likely to, um, to get what I want and quicker if I've done that than if mine is just in the pool of other emails that they get that doesn't stand out at all. I mean, I can see now, Stuart, uh, the comment I made earlier about writing better email actually improves your own productivity. I can see how this starts to starts to make sense now because if it's very clear to me that when I get an email from you, this is what you want in return, then we're not going to have these back and forth email conversations where neither of us quite gets the point and we spend most of our time trying to get the message across before uh, instead of actually ac acting on the message that's in there. Yes. Yeah, okay, yes. great. And then a couple of things that you can do, again, to, to make it even better, again, is, is there are three elements to a good subject line, and we're about to get to that, but uh, putting in a, a deadline is, means that people know when you want that response mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and, and then the last thing that you put in, in the uh, subject line is, in fact, what most of us put in as the only thing, is, is what the topic or subject is. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. And I like the idea about the deadline because I, I hate getting an emails uh, asking me to respond to something ASAP. Because if I, I take that literally as soon as possible, so that means that I prioritise it among any number of other things that I choose, and I yes. guess they they're expecting a response within a minute or an hour or a day, whereas ASAP to me might mean something completely different. 
It's very open-ended. <laughs> Absolutely. So you mentioned subject lines, and that, that is number four, which is all about how to write better subject lines. So let's talk about that. Yes, and, and in these days uh, of speed and, and pressure and urgency, the subject line is probably the single most important aspect of the message. Uh, it doesn't matter how good the message is if the subject line hasn't got the reader's attention and then they then go on to look at the message. Um, our messages are probably going to arrive as an interruption. Uh, they'll be doing a number of other things uh, that we're interrupting them, and it'll be one of many other emails they get as well. So how can we stand out? So the first one is to use a desired outcome, as we discussed, uh, one of the four desired outcomes, uh, action required, response requested, read only, or FYI. Uh, the second element to an effective subject line is a time frame. Uh, if I, for example, send off uh, an email to you, Gail, and say, please write a report for um, uh, an improvement in our uh, freight costs without a deadline, when will it get done? Mm -hmm. who, who knows? But if I say, can you please have that done by the 31st of this month, when will it get done? It's much more likely to be done by then. Or you can come back to me and say, hey, Stuart, I'm, I'm overseas. I won't be back until the 4th. Can I get it to you on the 6th of the next month? And I can say, yep, that's fine. Or I can say, no, listen, I need to uh, get someone else onto that job. I've still got control as a sender. But without a, uh, without a time frame or a deadline, I lose control. I forfeit it, really. Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to be followed, but it, it draws a line in the sand around which we can negotiate. ASAP is a time frame, but it's too generic. Mm -hmm. That's right. It doesn't do either of us. And, and then, of course, the third element of an effective subject line is that clear, concise description of what it's all about, what the subject line is. Um, and so that way, uh, we're writing much more effective subject lines. Most people are writing one of those three things, uh, but you'll get much better outcomes that will help you as well as the receiver by putting all three in, outcome, time frame, subject. Yeah, and it, of course, at the recipient's end, it helps them when they first get the email, and of course, it helps them when they file it away for, for later action because they can quickly skim through the, the email subject lines to, to quickly find an old email, can't they? Yes, and one of the things people, Gia, I don't know if you know this, a lot of people are not aware you can actually change the subject line before you file it. I might send it saying X, Y, Z, but for you, ABC makes a lot more sense. So when you go looking for it, your brain's wired up to look for ABC, but my subject line has been sent to you as X, Y, Z. What most people don't realise is you can change the subject line before you file it. That doesn't mean opening it up and sending it to yourself. No, you can just change the subject line uh, from the original message that comes in. Uh, and then you can file it in a way that makes sense for you. Yeah, right, right. And actually, while we're on the topic of changing subject lines, what's your thought on this, Stuart, where there's an email conversation that's going back and forth, um, and, and legitimately, because it may be topic, a topic that does require various information going back and forth. And I guess after a while, the topic has really changed and the subject line should be different. So do you think it's better when something like that happens where the, do you think that you should start a new email with a new, completely new subject and just on that topic? Do you think you should continue the current email thread or do you think you should continue the email thread with a new subject line? Yeah, and, and all three of those are appropriate at different times. Mm. What I, I try and do, if we're talking about the same subject but we're updating the conversation, I will try and add to the subject line, add to the end of it, uh, update or, um, or some other word that's appropriate so that they know that this is the latest version about the original subject line. Mm. Uh, so that's one possibility. The other one is, is to start with a new subject line altogether, uh, but leave the original content in the message because it, it gives the background information. And of course, the third one is start a whole new clean topic altogether without any of the background information because perhaps none of it's relevant enough to, to be in a new, new message, new topic. So all three of them are appropriate depending on how far away from the original 
topic you've, you've wandered and how much of that's relevant to the new topic. And I guess what you're saying is it comes back to this idea, write better subject lines. And if you can't write a subject line that's relevant and appropriate for this thread, then maybe it's time to change the subject or start a new message. Yes, yes. Yes, particularly uh, if you're going to be looking for it later and you're going to be thinking X subject when it's now uh, metamorphosed into uh, the S subject. And so you'll be thinking X and you, and, and you just won't be able to find it. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So your number five is about email follow-up. And you alluded to this idea earlier, Stuart, that the the person sending it, the person receiving the email, they're, they're in completely different contexts. So I'm sure there are times where you want to send an email but have some follow-up to it. So your, your principle is automate your email follow-up. So can you explain how you do that? Sure. Again, in the surveys that I take before workshops, there's one of the questions asks people to write 17 common email bugbears or frustrations on a scale of 1 to 10. And the one that comes up as the biggest bugbear, and the biggest by quite a long way, is getting no response to my email when my email clearly requires a response. Well, that response doesn't come quickly enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, all of the things we've been talking about help to improve that. Uh, but one of the best ways is to, uh, is to follow up. Uh, and rely on the system rather than the memory to do that. So as we're writing a new email, we can add a follow-up um, flag and or reminder to it. And it's as simple as when you're writing a new email, you click on the follow-up flag and you've got options to follow up today, tomorrow, this week, next week, or you can customise that and you can add a reminder. Well, the one I like is adding a reminder. And in the more modern versions of uh, email software, you can add a reminder not only for yourself, but also a reminder in the email for the recipient. And so that is uh, one of the ways that your email can go off with a reminder buried in it to do the first bit of follow-up manually, sorry, automatically, so that you don't have to do it manually. And obviously, uh, I would suggest getting permission from the recipient, something along the lines of, okay, listen, this is so important for both of us. How about I put a reminder in it so that we don't miss it? And once you agree, I can put the reminder into the email for you there's one for me as well. And I take that as permission to use it when it's appropriate again in the future. I, I don't ask for permission every time. Mm. Um, but don't send it off without getting permission because it'll irk people in the same way that the um, read receipt and reply uh, um, delivery receipts irk people rather than actually help anybody. So that's an interesting idea, Stuart, and I've never come across that. Uh, I must admit that when I send, I, I have a folder called pending, and when I send emails yes. where I where I'm expecting a response and I just have to wait for that response and move that email into the pending folder. But I think what you're yes. saying is that I can achieve the same effect quicker by using this follow-up process with the follow-up flag. Yes. Uh, when you put it into pending, you're then relying on your memory to go back and, and look at it or a very strong discipline of checking it on a regular basis. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I, I'd say, okay, at the start of every week, I look through pending and see if there was anything that I'm still, still waiting on a response and follow up. But you, yes. you're making this easier. Yes, so the alternative that I'm talking about is as you write the message, add a reminder to it, and you can add that reminder for yourself. You can also add it for the recipient. And then uh, if uh, you use Outlook, for example, you can look in one of the search folders, which is called for follow-up, and you can, can keep track of all those that you put a reminder on, or sorry, a flag on in that folder. The beauty about the reminder is I can forget about it, and the reminder is going to pop it back up on the screen at the appropriate time. Uh, so if I wanted to follow up with you, Gihan, by Tuesday, uh, next week at two o'clock, 
I can forget about it between now and then. I don't have to worry about remembering. I don't even have to have a good, strong discipline of checking my folder. It'll just pop up on the screen and say, hey, remember to follow up Gihan uh, on this subject that we, you know, I sent an email on last week. And this is so useful, Stuart, because then it comes back to that point you're making about asynchronous versus synchronous communication. If, if we do all the things that you've talked about so far and treat email as asynchronous, in other words, we don't expect people to be uh, reading it live and responding immediately. If we do that, one of the problems is that they're going to be we'll be sending a lot of messages that, that require follow up, and this is a way of making sure that that follow up happens automatically and and easily. Yes, and you get yourself a reputation too. Um, uh, for example, I get emails from Gihan. When they're important, they always have a reminder buried in them. Uh, the subject line's clear. Um, gee, I be, I'll take notice of Gihan. He makes it easy for me. He puts a reminder in, uh, which is a bit like the squeaky wheel getting oiled. Uh, so I better not forget his because I know I know he'll follow up. He's very diligent. Uh, he's probably even got one in the email. So you tend to rise to the top of the pile in terms of getting attention uh, with those that you send email to as well. Yeah, brilliant. And that does help, doesn't it? Because it improves your reputation as a sender, which makes it so much easier for the recipient, especially when most people are doing it, doing this very poorly. Yes, yes. And if I know I can ignore Jenny's emails because she never follows up, um, you know, she doesn't get great service. But if I know Gihan does have a, a good, strong regime of follow-up, and I don't know that you've automated, I just think you're very well organised, mm-hmm. um, I'll tend to look after you first. Yep, yep, brilliant. Okay, so your number six idea is uh, why the inverted pyramid structure is best for email. So I think we're coming back to the content of the email now, aren't we? Yes, now we're talking about the, the, uh, the, the way that you write the email. Uh, and for most messages, the best results will be gained by using the same approach that um, newspapers use, that journalists use. It's called the journalistic style of writing, or the inverted pyramid style of writing where uh, the very first sentence or paragraph explains the main point and then the rest of your email uh, uh, supports that with background information, details, explanations, reasons, etc. In the same way that uh, you find newspaper articles are written. Um, And this is the approach that works best for email. It's not the natural way of writing though. Uh, For most of us, we uh, were taught in school and it was reinforced in university that we should give our background reasons and explanations and, and information first and then state our request or our recommendation or our, our solution. But with email, that just doesn't work. And that's because of a, um, the fact that email's read in a hurry and if you don't get their attention straight away, they'll tend to scan the rest and they'll probably miss your main point. And in fact, uh, there's uh, some eye-tracking studies that have been done that show this distinct F-shape when people are reading websites as well as email where across the top of the F, they'll read the first paragraph or sentence. They'll come down to the second paragraph or sentence and they'll read across a bit, not as far, a bit like you know, the shortened uh, length uh, on the F, and then they'll scan down the rest. And most people's main point, if it's at the bottom of the F, uh, it just doesn't get seen. And so the important thing is to make sure it's up the top. In the same way that when people read newspaper articles, we often tune out halfway through. Um, and even if you only read headlines, you'd know exactly what's going on, the big picture stuff. Uh, and as I say to people, if you look at the last five emails you've written, you'll find you're probably making your main point at the bottom. Now, to change that way of writing is very unnatural. We've we've been doing that for, for a long time. Uh, so we don't have to contort ourselves out of shape to do that. What I say to people is write the email the way you normally do, but just reread it. Um, obviously, you're going to proofread, spell check, put in bullets if there's large slabs of text. But the last thing to do is to take the main point, which is probably at the bottom, and cut and paste it up to the top. Just invert it, if you like. And that's quite simple to do. Uh, and it also uh, 
gets you to clarify in your head what the main point is. If it's a long email, leave the main point at the bottom as well because people will often only remember the last thing they read in a longer email. Um, so that inverted pyramid uh, structure is, is, is powerful for breaking through. And I think the other point you made there, Stuart, is that if, when you get down to the bottom of the email, if you find that you can't find a main point that you want to copy and paste up to the top, then maybe you haven't written your email clearly enough. Yes, excellent, yes. Um, yes, if you can't summarise that, uh, um, then it needs a bit more thinking because if you can't work it out, how are they going to work it out? Yeah, exactly. And I think that, that it also comes back to something else you alluded to earlier, which is keeping the keeping the recipient in mind. And every time we write an email, we think it's the most important thing in the world. And yet the person getting the email, it may be one of 20 or 50 or 100 emails they're getting that day. It may be interrupting them. They don't want to take the time to read down to the bottom to, to find out what your point is. They just yes. want the facts early on. And uh, by doing this, you're making their life easier, which in turn makes your life easier. Yes. And, and as you say, thinking of the reader, uh, there are all sorts of different personality styles that we send our email to. The beauty about the inverted pyramid format is that it works for everybody. Your um, very brief director, driver, controller style personality who just wants the facts can read the main point and then they'll do what you want them to do and they'll move on. You'll get your analyzer perfectionist who want to read everything, who, what, where, why, how. Well, they can read the rest of the email and get all of the detail that they want and then they'll be satisfied. And other people can tune out at whatever point they've got as much information as they need to take the next step in the same way that um, uh, we do when we're reading a newspaper article. Uh, we, we tune out when we've got as much information. So it works for all the different types of people you could send it to as well. And one of the things I really like about this, this that makes this really practical, Stuart, is that you're saying you don't have to learn how to write like a write like a journalist. You simply write the way you normally do, and then there's this one little trick that you do at the end which will improve your email. And then I guess over time, you that will become a matter of habit and you won't have to do that cut and paste anymore. Yes, you'll start to think big picture for main point first, mm -hmm. but that's not natural. That'll take time. Um, I became aware of just how powerful this was quite a few years ago. I had run a session uh, for um, a congress late in the year, and 12 months later, I got a phone call out of the blue from a fellow, and he said, Stuart, you don't know who I am. My name is so-and-so from such-and-such, and I've been using uh, this idea that I, I was at the back of the room of the congress we never met, but I've been using this inverted pyramid idea for the last 12 months in my role, and it's made such a difference to my... Uh, results. Will you please fly up to um, Queensland now and teach my team how to use this inverted pyramid structure? Uh, because we all need to be getting better results. Yeah, great story, great stories. So now we get to the last one, Stuart, which is number seven, and it sounds similar to the uh, to the one we've just done, but I don't think it is. So number seven is why you write an email backwards. Yes, why you should write an email mm. backwards. Well, the way our email software is set up is the first thing we're asked to type in is the address. Uh, then CC, BCC, and then the subject line. And it's only after that that we then go down into the, the main window and we would write our email message. But in fact, to get best results, we should do it the opposite way around. We should write the message first, uh, do that um, uh, brainstorming, if you like, or freeform writing, then tidy it up, proofread, spell check, grammar check, put bullet points in, turn it into inverted pyramid. And only after that would we then go and write the subject line and then after that, as the last thing we do, uh, is address it. Now, many times I ask people, why should we address it last? And people go, oh, so I don't send it to the wrong mm, person. That's the reason I've Yes, or so I don't send it off half-finished. Um, and as I say to people, out of those three aspects of, of uh, an email, uh, the message, the subject line, or, or the address, which is the most important? And my belief is that it is the subject line. Mm -hmm. uh, um, 
because that's the one that's going to get their attention. If the subject line isn't well written, they won't even look at the message or they won't look at it quickly enough. And as I say to people, have you got a much better idea of how to write the subject line short, sharp, concise that summarizes it accurately before you write your message or after you write your message? And as most people agree, yes, it's distilled in my own head after I've written it and I can summarize it much better afterwards. Um, so we're going to write a better quality subject line if we would write it after we've written the message. And then addressing it again, have you got a much clearer idea who really needs to get this, who you can leave out, who could be CC'd before you write the message or after you write the message? And again, we have greater clarity once we've gone through the message and written the subject line and we realize, hey, I was going to send this to the whole team when I first thought about it, but now I realize it really only needs to go to Gihan and I'll CC Jenny because she's working on the project with him. Nobody else needs to know. I don't need to clutter them with things that are, are not needed or or perhaps I can CC them so that it becomes something that they need to read, but they don't have to take action or respond to. And that sort of thinking is much clearer uh, if it's the last thing that we do instead of doing it up front as, as our email software sets it up for. And this, I think that's pure gold, Stuart, because most of us, because email is so easy to write, it's at our fingertips all the time and it's free, we tend to do some of our thinking while we're writing rather than do the thinking first yes. and then compose. And I love this idea because... If you are going to do that, you're not saying stop doing it. You're saying after you do your thinking, then decide how you're going to grab people's attention with the subject line and also decide who you're going to send it to. Yes. So you're improving the quality, the quality of the subject line and the quality of the people that you're sending it to. Instead of being seen as someone who sort of blasts news to everybody about everything, uh, I know now uh, that, Gihan, I only get it from you when it's relevant for me and there's something that I need to do about it. And I'm going to take much more notice of your email communications. I'm going to value them more uh, than someone who perhaps doesn't uh, do this sort of thinking. Yeah, and I love that principle, Stuart, which you've mentioned a couple of times, which is building a reputation as being a good sender of email. And I think it does make a difference. Uh, I know there are some people who will regularly send me an email with a, with a very poor subject line. Like it might be something like <laughs> there's one client who... Every time, and I won't, I won't mention the name, but every time she sends it, uh, her email subject line is something like, from Jill. Yes. And it's completely useless to me because I know it's from Jill because that's, in her, uh, that's her email address anyway. And she's just wasted that spot where she could have actually given me something useful to, 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 to file and read and grab my attention. Uh, and there are other clients like you who say things like response required or action required or response requested and so on, where the subject line's clear. I know by when I've got to reply, so it makes it very easy for me to file away and, and prioritize. Uh, I know exactly what the message is about because the, the, the summary of it is in the very first paragraph. And it's just so much easier for me to, to deal with people like that. And Although it shouldn't be the case, we do tend to, as humans, just prioritise on the, peop uh, the people that we like and the people who are easy to deal with. Yes, yes. And there's even, um, because of the overload that email has created in our lives, uh, quite a lot of people use uh, software packages that will filter. And one of the common filters is by uh, recipient. Mm. Um, and so if you're one of those that uh, they can add to a whitelist, um, because they value your communications, uh, that's great, as opposed to being ignored or, or even put on a blacklist. Yeah, and that's, and that's great. And I just love all these ideas, Stuart, not only because they're strategic, but because they're, they're practical and easy for people to get started with. There's nothing that you've given here that I couldn't take away and put into practice as soon as we finish, as soon as I hang up. And I love that. And, 
and we use them every day. So as we use them, they become reinforced and become better at them. And as you say, they're practical. We need them, in fact. And uh, one of the ways to change email behaviour of other people is not to tell them how they should do it, but it's by setting a good example ourselves. People are much more likely to follow an example than they are to follow a, a rule. And um, we can even educate people in our emails. I, as, as you know, use the PS, little PS mm. uh, at the top of my auto signature. And I'll just drop different things in there. And I'll, I'll say, you might notice my email has got you know, one of these four subject lines. And so you just can educate people how we're using email, which is very subtly showing them how they might like to be able to um, use the same ideas. Yeah, great. And in fact, now that you mentioned that, I do something similar sometimes where somebody might send me an email with two separate questions or two separate action items, and they're quite separate, and they really should have been two separate emails. And in my reply, I'll reply with two separate replies. But at the start yes. of the first one, I'll say in brackets, oh, look, I'm just replying to these as separate emails so we can keep the topic separate. And I'll put that yes. in brackets, which which is helpful to them, but it also is just a nice little reminder to them that maybe next time they could they could think about sending them as separate emails. Yes. So yes. That's, that's really great, Stuart. I love this. I love the fact that it's strategic, that it's tactical, and that it's practical. Uh, and I know we've only touched the surface of managing email, and we've only looked at, in fact, one aspect of it, which is sending email. I know that you do a lot of work with clients in this area of email productivity and with both individuals and businesses. Before we finish off, what sort of clients do you like to work with? And is there a particular type of person or organization that's a good fit for you? Uh, Good question. Uh, I found that in recent years, um, in the wake of the GFC, I was doing a lot of work with government and and semi-government organizations uh, and also with uh, senior management in private enterprise. because of particularly senior management, because of the volumes, uh, one of the things that email has done is has it made senior people much more accessible than they used to be. Uh, it used to be quite difficult to get a, a senior person's time either face to face or on the phone, but it's very easy to now send them an email, and and they really snowed under it at higher levels in organisations. So I like working with them, um, with uh, um, more rank and file uh, levels in an organisation. I tend to run workshops, but when I get to senior levels, it will tend to be a shorter, sharper, say, conference presentations. Um, I ran a lunch and learn uh, this week, for example. Uh, that was just an hour. Uh, and I'm finding that I'm doing more one-on-one coaching um, to suit the, the timeframes and to the, the particular practices of individuals. Uh, and some of them, along with their PA or their EA, to, to help them between the two people, the manager and, the, and their PA, how do we manage the, the, um, the workload that comes out of the email? Uh, I do that um, uh, all over Australia, and I'm also developing, as, as you know, Gihan, some um, some webinars of this content as well, so that it's even more accessible to people in, in smaller bite-sized chunks. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And I'm sure there are people who would like to know more about the resources and to work with you as well. So how do people get in touch with you? Sure, the best way is probably uh, to go to the website, uh, which is uh, emailtiger.com.au, and uh, the contact page is there. There's also details about uh, uh, training and speaking and uh, coaching uh, offerings that are there. Uh, and then under the resources, there's the uh, the blog post that we've been talking about, Seven Ways to Write More Effective Email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's something that I regularly update. Uh, and there's also information about webinars in particular. And, and that has phone numbers and email addresses uh, on the site. Fantastic. So again, there's emailtiger.com.au. Stuart Snooks, thanks so much for your time and for your wisdom and insight. 
Wow, there's a lot that Stuart covered there and I hope you got real value from it. That's it for Expert Gold Radio for this month. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something that you can use in your business. Next month, I'll be talking to Neryl East about how to manage your online reputation. So look out for that in your podcast inbox soon. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. You've been listening to Expert Gold Radio. If you'd like to subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.